Well, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to have you get plugged into the community here. And like Aaron was saying, like Dawson was saying, uh, small groups are a great way to get plugged in, a great way just to get to know people. And so uh, I'd encourage you to check one of those out. You can find all the times and information uh, for those on our website, rivercitydbq.org. And you can message the leaders and get all the information that you need there. And so we'd love to love to have you get plugged in. Also, if you were with us last week, you'll know that we just finished our summer series taking a look at, uh, we were exploring God's attributes. And a big part of what I was trying to do with that series as we took a look at God's attributes wasn't just to show you the truth about who God reveals himself to be, but what I was trying to do is to help you to see is, is how what we believe about who God is and what he's like matters so much because it changes what we do. It, it really impacts what we believe about God really impacts our lives in real, meaningful, everyday kinds of ways. And as we begin our new series this week, what we're going to see from the get-go is that, is that belief plays a huge role in the Gospel of John, a central role in John's Gospel. John uses the word believe almost a hundred times in 21 chapters. And he tells us point blank at the end that the whole reason why he wrote the book was so that you, those who read it might believe. But before we get too far into exactly what John wants us to believe and why that's so important, let me just give you a little bit of background on the Gospel of John. So John is referred to, it's known kind of as the, the fourth gospel. And along with Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's kind of like a, a documentary about Jesus's life in a way. It kind of tells the story of, his, they tell the story of his life and ministry. And and among the four Gospels, John is really unique. It stands out because if you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, what you immediately notice is that there's a lot of similarities in them. They all have their own nuances and details and all kinds of different stuff that makes them, they're not like identical, but, but they're, they're, they're very similar. They tell many of the same stories. They use some of the identical wording and they follow the, the same basic plot line or storyline. And because of those similarities, they are referred to as the synoptic gospels, right? They're in sync, right? Think of your favorite 90s band and how tight those harmonies and dance moves were, right? Like they're, they're, all, they're on the same page, right? They're, they're heading the same direction. They're synced up, right? But if Matthew and Mark and Luke are the gospel equivalent of a harmonious boy band, then uh, John is like the indie rocker, right? Like he is going the other direction. Whatever the other guys are doing, he's doing the exact opposite thing, Right? Uh, one commentator calls John the Maverick Gospel. If it helps you remember, you just think about Top Gun, right? John is the Top Gun Gospel, right? It's just like going a different direction, okay? The reality is that John doesn't really fit the mold of the other three. 90% of the stories that appear in Mark's Gospel are found in Matthew and Luke, but 90% of the stuff that we see in the Gospel of John isn't found anywhere else. He totally ignores all kinds of things that the other three focus on, like Jesus' birth or parables that Jesus told or almost all of Jesus' public sermons and teachings. And instead, he tells a bunch of new stories about things Jesus said and did, including a bunch of these one-on-one -on -one kind of behind-the-scenes conversations that Jesus has with people like the Samaritan woman at the well or Nicodemus or others and, or the disciples. And he includes all kinds of different miracles. John refers to them as signs. We're going to talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. But um, he refers to all those kinds of things like uh, turning water into wine or raising Lazarus from the dead. And so John's gospel is very unique. It's full of all kinds of new information about Jesus. 
And a big part of the reason for those differences is that John wrote his gospel probably about 20 or 30 years after the other gospels were written. Uh, most commentators and and theologians uh, would date Matthew, Mark, and Luke somewhere around uh, 50s, 60s AD. Uh, John is somewhere around 80 to 90 AD, somewhere near the very end of the first century. And, and for a number of reasons, which we don't have time to get into this morning, we're pretty confident that when John is writing this gospel, he's doing it from the city of Ephesus. And by the late first century, Ephesus had kind of become like the, the, the hub of Christianity in the ancient world. It's where uh, theology and mission and all that kind of stuff was kind of stemming from. And and so uh, the the people there would most certainly have had access to and been familiar with the the content of the other gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in fact, it's likely that a significant portion of the audience John has in mind were second generation Christians themselves, meaning that they their parents were probably some of the first people to come to faith in Jesus. Maybe they would have been eyewitnesses themselves. And and so they'd grown up hearing all the stories about Jesus and and knowing all the right information and hearing the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and those kinds of things. In fact, there were probably, by this time, a bunch of them raising third-generation people who were learning about Jesus. And so John's not just trying to rehash everything for a fourth time, right? He's, he's not just trying to make another documentary that says all the same things, but in a slightly different way. No, the focus of John's documentary is not so much on what Jesus did. The focus of John's documentary is on who Jesus is on who he is. You see, Luke, for example, Luke was concerned with getting all the facts straight. He wanted to write an orderly account. His book is forever long, right? It would have taken like three years to get through the Gospel of Luke, right? He wants all the details, and that is important and right and good. I'm so thankful for the Gospel of Luke. But John is not primarily concerned with his readers knowing what Jesus said and did. He's primarily concerned with them understanding what that all means, the implications of those realities. And not just for other people, but for themselves. See, here's the reality. When you are a second generation anything, there's a whole lot that you just begin to assume. Right? Yeah, we've heard all those stories about Jesus before. I get it. We, yep, we know about the walking on water. Like we know about the things. Like well, this is like we we've gone over this a few hundred times. Like yep, we're we're on the same page. Of course, we believe those things. The reality is is that the most dangerous thing that we could ever do is to assume that just because the generation before us has believed the gospel that we have as well. Don Carson, uh, he once wrote, and I just thought this was so pointful, he said, what one generation believes, the next assumes, and the third forgets and denies. What one generation believes, the next assumes, and the third forgets and denies. And that brings us all the way back to why belief is so central to John's gospel. See, John is writing to an audience that knows enough about Jesus to be familiar with him, that knows the stories, that knows the things that Jesus said, that might even mentally agree with him, but doesn't know him in a transforming kind of way. What he's trying to do throughout the gospel, the whole point of his documentary about Jesus, is to is to highlight in no uncertain terms the eternity-altering magnitude of who Jesus really is. In a lot of ways, the people he's writing to have kind of been inoculated to the stories about Jesus. What John's trying to do is kind of shake them awake to the reality of the grandness of who Jesus claims to be. 
so that a head-level knowledge about Jesus might become a heart-level belief in him. The kind of belief that transforms their lives both now and for eternity. See, that's been my prayer as I've studied and prepped the last few weeks. Been asking God that he might be gracious to just to allow the stories about Jesus that maybe you've heard a bunch before to not just be old information, but to be good news to your hearts. You see, it's just easy for us to allow the, the stories about Jesus to be just like a newspaper that we've read before. So as we begin, let's ask God that he might help us not just to have more head knowledge about Jesus, but to grow in a heart-level belief in him that transforms our lives in real ways. And so with that in mind, let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you and for our time in your word. We just come humbly. God, would you show your son Jesus to us in a fresh way this morning and throughout our series. God, we need you to do that. God, we need you to help us to see Jesus for who he really is. God, whether for the first time or to see him fresh, God, help us not to just see the stories about Jesus as old information, but help our hearts to be captivated with awe and wonder and worship for you. God, we pray that uh, you would do that in us. I don't have any power or any ability to make that happen. The greatest sermon could never do it. And so, God, we need your spirit to give our hearts the ability to worship you and to respond rightly to your word, to believe in you, not just know about you. And so we ask that you would do that for our good and for your glory, God. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. reads this way. John writes, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking like, I thought he just said we were starting a series in John, and I'm new, but like usually the beginning is where you start, and normally you're right. That is, that is normally where you start. But we're going to start at the very end this morning. Just bear with me, right? Like, like I said earlier, the, the Gospels are kind of like documentary films that tell the story about Jesus' life, and no documentary ever includes all of the details. Every documentarian, they have to pick and choose what information they're going to include, because Every documentary is not just like security footage of, of someone's life. It's trying to tell a story and a, present a narrative about what this person was like and, and the story of their life, right? And, and like we talked about, John's gospel includes all kinds of new material about Jesus that the other gospels don't include. It's kind of like, I don't know if you remember, a couple of summers ago, there was a, a documentary that got produced on the 98 Chicago Bulls, which is arguably, not even arguably, objectively, the greatest basketball team of all time, right? It's factual, right? And uh, I grew up in the Jordan glory years. My family's from just outside Chicago land, and so that was like just all the nostalgia. But there was so much in there that I didn't know, there, or things that were presented in a new way, and I just learned a ton as I watched that. And 
And, and I don't know if you watched those, but after each episode, when they originally aired, they had like an interview with the producer afterwards. And he would talk in that interview about why he included the things that he did in the episode. And he'd talk about all the other things he just didn't have time to include or that didn't make the cut or whatever it was. And he was explaining basically why the episode was the way it was. Why the details were there that were there. And, and that's basically what these verses in John are like. It's kind of like the post-credits producer interview at the end. He pulls back the curtain. He says, this is what all of it was about. This is the rubric on which I based all the decisions about what I included and what I didn't. And in these verses, John's telling us exactly why he included everything he did. Verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs which are not recorded in this book. He's saying way more stuff happened. He says, but the reason I included all the specific miracles and conversations and details that I did, everything that's in here, he says, verse 31, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we study John's purpose statement this morning, as we begin our study in his gospel, um, I want to show you two things, just two things this morning. Uh, the first is what John wants us to believe and why John wants us to believe. Two points, short and sweet, right? I thought about including chapter one, and I realized very quickly that was going to be like an hour and a half sermon, and let's just be honest, ain't nobody got time for that, right? And so we're going to just do these two verses this morning. We'll get to chapter one next week, okay? Well, let's dive in. Uh, first thing I want to show you this morning, what John wants us to believe. Verse 31, again, he says it this way, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, so there's, there's two things that John wants us to believe, two reasons, two things he wants us to believe, reasons why he, wrote, why, he, why he wrote the gospel. And the first is that he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Your translation might say the Christ. That's the same thing. Uh, it's just a translation either from Hebrew or from Greek, and they're really the same word, just different base language. And but Messiah, it means anointed one. In, in biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God had kind of set somebody apart for a special task or purpose, a, a God-ordained appointment. And we see places in Scripture where God told Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him as Israel's prophet. And we see in, in Exodus how Aaron is anointed as the first high priest of Israel. And Samuel, he anoints Saul and David as, as future kings of Israel. But when you look at these people, even though they've been appointed by God, chosen by him for a specific task and purpose, what you see is that, and empowered by him, what you see is that they all lead God's people in insufficient ways. They all fall short. They all, they all don't cut it. They all fail. They all sin. None of them were the, were the perfect leaders that God's people needed. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies about someone who would come who would be the, the true and better prophet and priest and king, the one who would reveal God perfectly as the, as, the, as the ultimate prophet, the one who would mediate a new covenant, a new relationship with God as the true and better high priest, and the one who would ultimately come to rescue and deliver God's people and inaugurate God's kingdom as the true and better king. 
And God's promise that this person begins all the way back in Genesis. As soon as sin enters the world in the garden, God promises that one day someone's going to come from the line of Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and who would come to defeat Satan and sin and death. And that's what the point of all the genealogies in the Bible are really about. They're not like an IRS you know, government tracking history, right? They're, they're intended to trace the line of that promise that God made. That one day a rescuer would come. Throughout the whole Old Testament, this expectation and tension just keeps building and building. And every time there's a new king or a new leader who speaks on God's behalf or whatever it might be, everyone's wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one? Is this the one that God had promised would come and and set all things right? But the reality is that none of them are. And then the Old Testament ends, and the Messiah hasn't come, and then there's 400 years where God is silent. And then that's where the New Testament picks up, and What John and the other gospel writers, they want us to believe is that in Jesus, that someone has finally come. That he is the promised Messiah, the true and better prophet, priest, and king, the one who reveals God perfectly, the one who mediates a relationship with him personally, the rescue is that rescues us permanently from the dominion of darkness and establishes his everlasting kingdom. And the problem is, though, is that Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that everyone was expecting or that they wanted. See, the Israelites, they were desperately hoping for a national king, for a Messiah to come and set them free from the bonds of Roman oppression. And, and, but that's not what Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus hadn't come to conquer Rome or establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus had come to conquer Satan and sin and death and to establish a spiritual, eternal kind of a kingdom. And he didn't come so that people could birth a new nation. He came so that people might be reborn into a new family. God's family. See, the reality is that the Jews were hoping that they thought what they wanted desperately was a Messiah who would come and set their situations right. See, but what Jesus had come to do was to set them right, to set them right with God. But in order to do that, Jesus needed to be more than just the Messiah. He needed to be God himself. And that's the other thing that John wants us to see in in his kind of producer behind the scenes letter. See, Jesus is not just God's anointed rescuer. He is God himself. Verse 31 says, These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Over a hundred times in John's gospel, Jesus refers to God as his Father. And that's not really weird for us today as Christians to kind of think about that. We talk about God as a father. That's, that's normal and good for us. But I can guarantee you no Jew at the time was talking about God as their father and talking about themselves as a son of God, let alone the son of God. Nobody's talking like that. It all comes to a head in John chapter 10 when the crowds, they, they come to Jesus and they basically are saying to him, shoot straight with us, just yes or no, are you the Messiah? Like just all we want is yes or no, are you him? And Jesus, he, he responds to them and he says, I have been telling you all along, but he says, you don't believe. And, and he ends this conversation by saying, I and the Father are one. See, what Jesus is communicating to these people is that yes, he is the Messiah, but he's more than that. He's God himself. You see, the Jews, they got that message. They understood what he was saying loud and clear because the following verses says they pick up stones to stone him. 
Right? You stone people for blasphemy. That's what they thought Jesus was doing. He was claiming to be God. See, so the reality is, is that they couldn't handle Jesus' claim. Not only was he not the Messiah they were expecting, he was claiming that he was God himself. And the reality is, is that a lot of people today can't handle that claim either. People are more than happy to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, that he's kind of like a great spiritual life coach, if that's what you need. People are glad to acknowledge him as a, a moral guide or a great example that we should follow. The problem is, though, that's not who Jesus claimed to be. That's not who he said he was. C.S. Lewis famously said it this way. He said, To say that Jesus is a great moral teacher but not God is the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher, for he has not left that option open to us. He's not left that option open to us. See, here's the truth that the Jews missed and that you and I often miss. See, any great teacher can give you some good advice, help you out of a jam. Any great leader can save you from a bad political situation or a national trouble. But there's only, but only someone who is both fully God and fully man can rescue us from the true enemies we have of Satan and sin and death. You see, what we all need saving from is the consequences of our sin. And from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is absolutely clear that the wages of sin is death. And that might seem extreme until we understand what sin really is. You see, sin, the Bible says, is not just a mistake. It's not just a bad decision. Sin is the choice that you and I all make to reject God and his good authority. Right? We, we, instead of letting God be the one who decides what is true and right and good, we decide we'll be the ones that will, that will stage a coup and eject God from his throne, overthrow him, and we'll enthrone ourselves as the arbiters of what is true and right and good. We want to decide what's best for us in this world and best for others, and we want to be God, and it's a choice that all of us make. And what that makes us is not just sinners, what it makes us is mutinous rebels. See, that's what we need saving from. That's what we need rescuing from. It's not just bad situations or bad decisions. It's rebellion against the very king and creator of the universe. What John is trying to help us see is that the only someone who is both fully man and fully God can save us from that. You see, we needed a human savior who could serve as our substitute, our representative, and Jesus did. He lived the life you and I were supposed to live. He faced all the things you and I face. And where, and where we endlessly failed, he did not. He died the death that you and I were condemned to die. He took our place on the cross as our representative. And he could only do that because he, as the Messiah, he was fully human. But we also needed a Savior who was capable of paying the penalty for our sin. You see, our sin is not just against other people, it's against an infinite God. And so only an infinite Savior like Jesus, who was fully God, could pay our infinite debt. And so we needed a Messiah who was not just a man, who was not just a great leader or a good prophet or, or a wise king. What we needed was a divine Messiah. One who could rescue us from the things no people ever could. And what John wants us to believe 
is that Jesus is that Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer we so desperately need because he is indeed God himself. Come to save us from our sins so that you and I might be restored to a right relationship with him, both now and forever. See, that brings us to the second thing I want to show you in our passage this morning. John doesn't just say what he wants us to believe, he tells us why. Why he wants us to believe that. Verse 31, the end of it says it this way. He says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, he says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ken Burns, a famous documentarian filmmaker, and there's this famous quote that he said, he once said that my job as a documentarian is to wake the dead. And he was talking about how uh, he brings kind of historical figures back to life and helps people to see what they were like and those kinds of things. And I think John would probably agree a lot with him that that's the job of a good documentarian, but with one major difference. You see, John's documentary about Jesus isn't telling Jesus' story to bring him back to life. Spoiler alert, Jesus already did that. See, John's documentary is telling the story about Jesus so that you and I might come alive ourselves. See, the word life appears 36 times in John's gospel. John chapter 1-4 says that in him Jesus was life. That life was the light of all mankind. John 3-36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 6-35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 10-10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. John 11-25, Jesus says to Mary, she says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if they die. John 17, chapter 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, John wants us to believe so we might have life. And I don't normally talk about original languages all that much because the truth is our translations are very good and you just don't need that information 99% of the time. But sometimes there's important things to point out here. And, and one is in John's gospel when it comes to this word life. You see, in the Greek there's a couple of different words for life. One of those words for, Greek in, in the, for the word life in Greek is the word bios. It refers to a physical life. It refers to It's like existing, right? But another Greek word that's used for life is the word zoe. And that's the one that John uses in all of these examples. When he talks about how Jesus is the life, that he is eternal life, that there is life found in him, he always uses that Greek word zoe. And what John is not talking about is physical life. He's not talking about breath. What he's talking about is a quality of life. He's talking about the kind of life that you're looking for, meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy. He's talking about the life that we're all searching for. All of us are looking for a Zoe kind of life. We're looking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and joy. And we look for it in all kinds of places. We look for it in our jobs, in our careers, in our possessions. We try to find it in our friendships or in our families or in our relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends or spouses. We look for it in power and influence other over other people or approval or acceptance from them. We, we seek it out in pleasure and in comfort and in escape from the stress 
stress of the world. We look for it in control of all the variables in our lives. And the problem that John is trying to help us to see is that we are trying to fill the the zoe need for life we are looking for with bios kinds of food. And it never satisfies. It never fulfills. It doesn't work. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis again, he puts it this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so I must take care never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind, a copy, an echo, a mirage. See what C.S. Lewis and what the Gospel of John are trying to get us to see is that throughout this Gospel is that Jesus is the life you are looking for. He's not just the end He's the means and the end. He is the thing you are after, the thing you are so desperate and hungry for, the thing we are all hungry for. It's found one place, it's found in Him. He's the one thing that satisfies when you get it. He's the one thing that that brings life. And when you believe in Him, John says, you come alive. You have life, real life, both now and forever. That brings us to the final thing I want to talk about this morning. We've, we've seen what John wants us to believe. We've seen why he wants us to believe it. But here's the deal. Knowing that information is not enough. Knowing that information is not enough. You have to actually believe it for yourself. The question is, what does that mean? I said in the beginning, John uses the word believe almost a hundred times in 21 chapters in his his gospel. And every single time he uses the verb. It's not a noun, it's always a verb. Because for John, belief is always this active idea. What he's communicating is that belief is not primarily informational. Belief is a transformational reality. It requires, yes, that we agree informationally with what Jesus has said about himself and who he has claimed to be, but it's more than that. Belief in him looks like a reorientation of our lives around the truth about who he says. It looks like us trusting him as Savior and submitting to him as King and as Lord and as God. And over and over in the stories John tells us, we get these snapshots of people who are responding to Jesus. We'll see many of them over the course of the months we're in this gospel. And through them, what John's trying to show us is a picture of what genuine, true belief looks like in Jesus. In chapter 3, he just to, to name a few, in chapter 3, he talks with Nicodemus, who's a, who's a spiritual leader of the Israelites at, at the time. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he thinks that he knows who he really is. He thinks he believes what's true about Jesus, that he is a great teacher, that he's a rabbi. But Jesus tells him that he has only a head-level understanding about him, but that his heart has not been changed, and so he does not know him. Conversely, in chapter 12, Mary, who had just seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead, She comes to Jesus humbly and she pours this wildly expensive perfume on her feet. She sacrifices this family heirloom, as we'll see. And what's 
What she's doing in that moment is she's showing what she believes, that it's not an informational, knowledge-level belief in Jesus. It is a heart-level, transformational faith. He is changing her. The reality of who he is is changing her. See, here's the reality that John keeps showing us. Genuine belief, saving faith, it is always changing faith. If you are here this morning and your faith in Jesus is, yep, I grew up with those things, I believe what he says, yes, Jesus is God, yes, he died on the cross, but you just endlessly keep living the exact way you want and it doesn't really matter, then I need you to hear this morning, in love I want to say this to you, that's not belief. That's not what John is talking about. That is not saving faith. And in telling us all these stories and showing us all these glimpses and giving us these little insights and pictures into what real, genuine faith looks like throughout his gospel, what John is trying to do is he's asking, he's inviting us to ask the question, have you come to believe like that? Jesus is not just a good teacher or a spiritual life coach. He's not a moral guide or an example to follow. He is the very God of the universe. He's come to deliver you from the otherwise undefeatable enemies of Satan and sin and death. And when you believe that that is who he is, it transforms you. And if your faith in him has not changed your life, it has not saved you. And John says, that's not real faith. That's not what he's after. John is writing to a bunch of second generation Christians who have assumed a whole lot about Jesus. And he says, you cannot assume anything about him. You have to believe in him for yourselves. And that kind of a belief, it changes you. It transforms the way you look at the world. It transforms what you love. It changes what you do. It is life-altering. Jesus is an eternity-altering. Who he is changes everything. And if you believe the truth about him, it cannot leave you unchanged. And if it does, that means you have not believed. What John says is that when we put our faith in him, when we have a genuine faith, not only will we live forever in the end with him, but you and I, we will come alive in a way that we never have before. We'll have that Zoe kind of life that we're all longing for, a life full of meaning and purpose one full of fulfillment, not a life that's void of hardships, not a life that's easy, but one where there is joy and hope in the midst of all of it. Because what we found is the very source of life itself. It's Jesus. He is not the means to an end, he's the end himself. What John so desperately wants and what my prayer for you as we study his gospel these coming months, is that you might see him as the life you're after. That you might get a glimpse of who he really is. That your heart might be captivated with awe and wonder and worship. And that you might be transformed, not on a head level, because a heart level belief has changed you. See, that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion Communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't change our status or our standing with him. The Bible is clear that faith in Jesus is the one thing that does that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember. 
It's a chance for us to to remember the truth about who he is, that Jesus is God himself come to earth to be the Messiah that we needed, to reveal himself, to reveal God to us perfectly, and to relate to us personally, and to rescue us permanently from the enemies of Satan and sin and death. And as a fully human, he died the death that you and I deserved in our place as our substitute. And as fully God, he paid the penalty that only he could pay so that you and I might have life in him both now and forever. And so if you have believed in Jesus to be the Messiah, your Savior, your Rescuer, your King, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice and you can take communion that way. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know, you are so welcome here. I am so glad that you would be here. And your doubts are welcome here, and your questions are welcome here, and your process is welcome here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after empty rituals. He's not after a head level going through the motions. What he wants is a heart level of hope in him. A trust in him that transforms your very life. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City, this church is. And you are welcome here. I want to encourage you, come back next week as we keep exploring who Jesus really is. Keep asking those questions. Keep pressing in. As we sing and as we worship God and remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God this morning. Some of you are here and you need to believe the truth about Jesus for the first time. You have been looking everywhere for life. But it endlessly leaves you wanting And I need you to see this morning that Jesus is the thing you're after. He is the life you are so desperately longing for. He has the Zoe kind of life that you're trying to fill with bios kinds of food. He's the thing you're after. And when you put your faith in him to rescue you from your sin and to forgive you, then what happens is he puts his spirit in you and you come alive. He makes you into the person you were always meant to be. And it's okay if you still have questions, and if you're not quite ready for that this morning, like I said earlier, come back next week. Keep exploring him. Keep asking questions. Check out a small group. Keep looking into what it means to believe in him. Others of you, though, are here this morning, and you need to make your faith your own. Maybe like John's original audience, you're a second-generation, third-generation Christian. You've heard all the stories about Jesus. You know all the stories. You know all the information. All of it's old news, but it's just a head-level knowledge for you. And John's gospel is here for you because what John wants you to know in love is that that is not enough. It's not enough. But he also has written this gospel so that you might have a transformative belief in him, not just a knowledge of him. That you might see him as the Messiah and as God, the one who has come to rescue and redeem not just your family, not just your friends, not just your community, but you. And there's an invitation this morning and throughout our series that you might put your faith in him. You can't piggyback a faith off of your family or your friends. That's not how it works. And lastly, others of you are here and you believe the truth about Jesus, that he is the God sent to save you from your sin. And the invitation as we spend these next months studying John's gospel is that you might continue to deepen your faith in him. 
See, John's not merely interested in instilling a belief in Jesus for those who don't believe at all. He is just as interested in strengthening the faith and belief of those who are already followers of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, even this morning, ask God that he might help you to see more of who he is. That he might give you a deeper picture of what Jesus has come to do to do on your behalf and who he is to you so that you might trust him more deeply and that you might worship him more fully. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for you and for our time in your word. And as we come together this morning, as we begin a new series taking a look at John's gospel, we come needing you to make yourself known to us. God, we, we can come to an informational knowledge about you on our own, but we cannot come to a transforming faith in you without you showing yourself to us. And so God, cause the head-level knowledge about you to become heart-level belief in you, and so that it might transform our lives as we see you as the very life we are after. And so uh, may we, might we, Jesus, believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and in believing, have life in your name. We pray. Amen.